9. Raya, in consequence of which the mines of Cana were closed in 1685. Towards the end of the 17th century William Patterson established a Scottish colony on the Bay of Caledonia, at Puerto Escoces, but the venture scarcely proved a success. Ill fate seems to have pursued most of the attempts at settlement in New Granada while the Spanish rule lasted, yet the town of Santa Fe de Bogota flourished, and has continued to flourish to this day so that no less an authority than Mr. R.B. Cunningham Graham has described it as the chief literary center south of Panama. The town is set at the foot of the hills, facing a vast plain, and towards the end of the colonial period was represented as a city of 3.250 families a population of upwards of 16.000. It was the center of archiepiscopal authority, with jurisdiction over the dioceses of Cartagena, Santa Marta, Panama, Caracas, and Quito. The route from Bogota to Europe lay by way of Cartagena, 300 miles distant from the capital. Next in order of importance was Quito. The immense province was and is at the present day made up for the most part of dense jungle growth, alternating with marshy and desert stretches, with nomadic tribes inhabiting the more open areas. The city of Quito itself, set in perpetual spring, is considered one of the most beautiful spots in the world. Almost its only drawbacks being the tremendous violence of the tropical storms to which it is subject, and occasional earthquake shocks. The poverty of the mines of Quito freed the Indian inhabitants from mining labor, a form of industry which, under Spanish rule, depopulated so many native centers. In consequence of this Quito was reputed to be the most thickly populated province of South America. Various manufactures were pursued and there were several towns with populations of over 10.000. The products of the land were exchanged for wine, oil, and other extraneous products, but so inefficient was the colonial administration that in 1790 Quito was one of the poorest of South American cities. The article of chief value for rubber had not then come into prominence was the quinquina, or cincona bark, at first considered peculiar to the territory of Loza, but subsequently found to exist at Bogota. Rio Bamba, and many other parts of New Granada. It was first introduced to Europe by the Jesuits in 1639, and after its use had been established at the Spanish court in 1640, it commanded a price of 100 crowns a pound. In these circumstances Quinquina was, as a matter of course, subject to adulteration and substitution practices which brought their own reward, since the quinine of Loza, at one time considered of the highest quality fell into disrepute when the gatherers in that province mixed with the real article the bark of other trees. Perpetually increasing demand led to more careful search for supplies, and the new Granada of the colonial era owed almost all its prosperity to the exports of the famed bark, for the output of minerals dwindled almost to vanishing point. The captain generalship of Venezuela was chiefly noteworthy for the Spanish settlements on the Orinoco where over 4.000 Spaniards were contained in a dozen or so of villages rather indolently engaged in cattle raising, together with tributary Indians. The settlers made up a total population of nearly 17.000, with over 70.000 head of cattle among them. Their trade was with the Dutch of Curacoa, who supplied goods in exchange for cattle, hides, and tobacco. Caracas was then, as it is now, the headquarters of the colony which was separated from the Viceroyalty of New Granada in 1731. Three years previously in 1728 some merchants of Guipisco obtained exclusive trading rights with Caracas, conditionally on their putting an end to the trade with Curacoa, and landing all cargoes at Cadiz, 
so successfully did they fulfill these conditions, and to such an extent did they increase the development of the colony, that it was deemed necessary to separate it from New Granada, and form an entirely new administration. Illustration, Theodorosi, in Bolivia, the famous center of the silver mining region which supplied the Spanish Empire with bullion for three centuries, from a 17th century engraving, yet the climate, or some obscure effect of the mingling and cross-breeding of conquerors and conquered, seems to have paralyzed human effort in these colonies of the northern coast. The land was something of an earthly paradise, and men were tempted to doze in it rather than to develop its resources. The cacao of Venezuela takes first place in the markets of the world, and has done so since its initial cultivation there, but not one-tenth of the area available for the growth of the bean has ever been utilized. Caracas itself, earthquake shaken from time to time, was never even in the most favorable periods of colonial rule a flourishing city, but rather a center of trade for scattered settlements. The town could claim little literary or educational movement to market as the capital of a potentially rich country. It was concerned, moreover, with scarcely a trace of the social and erudite development that characterized Bogota almost from the time of its foundation by Quesada, in so far as it had to be. Caracas existed, but there its ambition ended, except for some isolated centers. This was true of the whole of New Granada and Venezuela. Under Spanish rule the Viceroyalty and its dependent captain generalship formed a great area into which Spaniards had come to hunt for mineral wealth, and while that wealth was obtainable there was a vast amount of activity. The Aborigines, save for the Chibcha race, numbered among them some of the lowest types on the continent, and where gold or emeralds or other valuable minerals were to be obtained these unfortunates were pressed into service, or rather into slavery. When the minerals were exhausted, enterprise ceased. Sufficient cultivation for material needs an easy matter in this productive land was carried on, and in certain districts a definite amount of cacao growing was practiced. For the rest, little was achieved while farther south development was proceeding along the lines which had brought into being the great republics of today. Then Venezuela gave to South America Simon Bolivar, and the storm of revolution which swept the continent shook these northern dependencies into transient wakefulness and energy, until the great day of Boyaca dawned, and New Granada and Venezuela, as Spanish colonies, ceased to be, fit or unfit as they might have been for self-government at the time. These people set out to make histories as independent states, and the Spanish colonial era, having lasted over two and a half centuries, came to an end. Chapter X be the last days of empire we have now arrived at the most critical of all the periods which Spanish South America has undergone in the course of its history, the decade or so which preceded the actual outbreak of the revolutionary wars. In order to arrive at a just appreciation of the situation it is necessary to realize that, Although the policy of Spain had consistently demonstrated itself as discouraging towards learning and progress in every direction, to such an extent had the population of the colonies grown that this task of repression of the intelligence of a continent had now become Herculean and altogether beyond the powers of the moderately energetic Spanish officials. Despite every precaution, the colonists had succeeded in educating themselves up to a certain point, moreover, a number of them, flinging restrictions to the wind had now begun to travel abroad, and had visited European centers. The sons of the New World had adapted themselves admirably to the conditions of Europe. They had been received by notable personages in England and France, who had been struck with the intelligence and ideals of the South Americans. These latter, for their part, 
had benefited from an exchange of views and from conversations concerning many subjects which were necessarily new to them. With an intercourse of this kind once in full swing it was inevitable that the regulations of Spain should automatically become obsolete and, in the eyes of the Americans, ridiculous, in South America itself. Nevertheless, the social gap between the Spaniard and the colonial continued entirely unbridged, and the contempt of the European officials for the South American-born was as openly expressed in as gratuitous a fashion as ever. Indeed, as the opportunities for education broadened for the colonists, it would seem that their Spanish-alleged brethren affected to despise them still more deeply no doubt as a hint that no mere learning could alter the solid fact that their birth had occurred without the frontiers of European Spain. The ban upon mixed marriages continued, and neither viceroys, governors, nor high officials might lead to the altar any woman born in America, however beautiful she might be, and however aristocratic her descent. A few minor privileges had been accorded to these overseas dwellers, it is true. A system of titles had been instituted throughout the colonies, for instance, by means of this it was hoped to pander to the vanity of the Americans, and to bring into being a new tie of interest which should cement the link between the old and the new world which was proving so profitable to Spain. As a matter of fact, none took the trouble to grant these titles in return for merit or service, it was necessary to buy them and to pay for them. Their grandeur was strictly local. Thus a marquis or a count in Lima or elsewhere in the southern continent would have been crassly unwise to leave the shores of South America, for once in Spain his title fell from him like a withered leaf, he became plain, senor, and nothing beyond. For in Spain these colonial distinctions were a matter for jeers and mockery. What remained, therefore, for the poor local noble but to hasten back to the spot where his nobility held good. It was better to bask as a marquis in the sunshine of the South than to be cold-shouldered as a plebeian in stately Castile. Commercial and more material distinctions which favored Spain as against her colonies remained equally marked. Bartolo Mitre has appropriately explained the situation which preceded the revolution, the system of commercial monopoly which Spain adopted with respect to America immediately on the discovery of the continent was as disastrous to the motherland as to the colonies employing a fallacious theory in order that the riches of the new world should pass to Spain, and that the latter country should serve as sole provider to her colonies. All the legislation was in the first instance directed to this end. Thus in America all industries which might provide competition with those of the peninsula were forbidden, in order that this monopoly might be centralized. The port of Seville and afterwards that of Cadiz was made the sole port of departure and of entry for the vessels carrying the merchandise between the two continents in order to render the working of this system doubly efficacious. No commercial communication was permitted between the colonies themselves, and the movements of all merchandise were made to converge at a single point. This scheme was assisted by the organization of the galleon fleets, which, guarded by warships, united themselves into a single convoy once or twice a year. Porto Bello with Panama on the other side of the narrow isthmus was the sole commercial harbor of South America. Merchandise introduced here was sent across the isthmus and down the Pacific coast, and eventually penetrated inland as far as Potosi. To this place the colonists of the south end of the Atlantic coast were obliged to come in order to effect their negotiations, and to supply themselves with necessities at a cost of from 500 to 600 percent, above the original price. These absurd regulations, violating natural laws and the rules of good government, as well as the colonial monopoly, could only have emanated from the madness of an absolute power supported by the inertia of an enslaved people. When Spain, enlightened by experience, 
wished to alter her disastrous system of exploitation, and actually did so with sufficient intelligence and generosity. It was already too late. She had lost her place as a motherland, and with it America as a colony. No bond, whether of force, affection, or of any other interest, linked the disinherited sons to the parent country. The separation was already a fact, and the independence of the South American colonies nearly a question of time and opportunity. What would have happened had the position of Spain herself in Europe remained in impaired is idle to conjecture, but it is practically certain, with the new light which was now beginning to flood the new continent, that the struggle for independence would have been postponed for a few years only. The first herald of the great struggle for liberty which was to ensue was Francisco Miranda. The character of Miranda resembled not a little that of Bolivar. Both men were of exalted and enthusiastic temperaments, both were skilled in the arts of oratory and the management of men, and both possessed a visionary side, for each the situation in the new world formed an ample and, indeed, justifiable field. Long before the first outbreak of hostilities in America Miranda had played the part of stormy petrol in other continents. Born in Venezuela, he had the advantage of a wider knowledge of the world than many of his compatriots, he had already taken an active part in the struggle between North America and Great Britain, and he had joined with Lafayette in the territories of the then British colonies in order to assist the revolutionaries in their campaign. No ill will appears to have been borne him by the English for the part he played in this war, for some while afterwards we find him residing in England, and corresponding with many prominent men of the period. He is said to have gained the friendship of Fox, and it may have been due to his efforts, whether direct or indirect that Canning gave such whole-heart support to the South American cause, as has already been said, it was largely due to Miranda's persuasions and assertions somewhat premature and optimistic though these eventually proved themselves that the various British expeditions sailed for the river plate. The result was disastrous in every respect save that it lent to the colonials a new confidence in their own powers. In any case Miranda's good faith and honor were unquestionable although at a later period he appears to have fallen somewhat under the suspicion of his fellow patriots. It was not long before the efforts of Miranda began to be seconded by those of other distinguished and high-spirited South Americans. Simon Bolivar, the liberator himself, accompanied by a tutor, was sent by his parents to gain an intimate knowledge of Europe and of the polite arts of the old continent. Here he had plunged himself into a Latin classics and the French philosophy and his remarkable personality is said to have created no small impression upon those with whom he came into contact. Venezuela has every right to be proud of the fact that, although the seeds of liberty had already been sown throughout the continent, and especially in the River Plate provinces, they first sprouted into material activity in Venezuela, for Bolivar, having been born at Caracas, could claim Miranda as a fellow countryman, or rather as a neighbor, since theoretically, in the colonial days, all South Americans were fellow countrymen. It is certain that during this early European tour of Bolivar's he had already become strongly imbued with the idea of freeing his country and continent from the rule of Spain. At one period of his travels he was at Rome, and he is said to have chosen the holy city as the spot in which to swear a solemn oath to take his share in the liberation of his native land in oath which, as history proves, he fulfilled in generous measure. Since the first desperate fights in the north of the continent were conducted on the Patriot side under his auspices and those of Miranda, in the face of all the trials and injustices which they had undergone, it is important to remember that the temperament of the South Americans was one which urged them strongly to remain loyal to the mother country, although it had now become evident that a rupture was inevitable. 
the colonists viewed the snapping of the ties which bound them to Spain with reluctance and in ease, as fate would have it. It was the situation in Europe which arose to solve the difficulty, and to remove the last doubt from the breasts of the South American patriots. The news of catastrophe after catastrophe filtered slowly through from the peninsula to the colonies. The Napoleonic armies had overrun the country, the Corsicans' talons were now fixed deeply in its soil, and the rightful sovereign had abdicated while the throne was being seized upon by Joseph Bonaparte. Then came the news of a Spanish hood formed as a last resource to organize a defense of the harassed country, after this followed tidings of dissensions among the numbers of these defenders themselves, of the formation of other hoodas, and, in fact, of the prevalence of complete desolation and catastrophe and of the wildest confusion, in the midst of the reports and rumors, contradictions and confirmations which followed one another at as great a pace as the methods of communication of the period would allow. There came at last definite proofs of the chaos which reigned in Spain. An envoy arrived in Buenos Aires, sent by Napoleon in his capacity of Lord of Spain, in order to announce the fact to the colonies, and to open up negotiations for future transactions. Almost simultaneously arrived another envoy a special messenger this, sent from the Hood of Seville, who claimed that Spain still belonged to the Spaniards, and that the Hood of Seville represented Spain. In one direction the colonial authorities were enabled to act without hesitation. Napoleon's envoy was sent packing back in haste to where he had come from. The messenger from the Hood, on the other hand, was received with every consideration, but his presence failed to dispel the doubts from the minds of the South Americans, for the downfall of Spain was now patent to all, as well as her impotence, not only to maintain communication with her colonies, but to move hand or foot to free herself from the grasp of the French. The situation as it now presented itself would have been sufficiently bewildering even in the case of colonies who had enjoyed fair treatment on the part of the Madre Patria. Amid the chaos which prevailed in Europe it was practically impossible to discover in whose hands the actual authority lay in Spain. The Spanish king, his rival prince, Joseph Bonaparte, the Hoda of Seville all these reiterated their claims to the supreme authority. The storm of contradictions and disclaimers ended by proving clearly to the colonists what was actually the case. In Spain no single supreme authority existed. This in consequence lay with themselves. From the moment that this became clear the passive submission to the local royal garrisons and to the powers of Spain set above them began to give way to active protests. In ordinary circumstances these would probably have continued for some while, and efforts would have been made to avoid the actual resort to arms. So fiercely, however, were the first claims to their rights on the parts of the colonists resented and opposed by the Spanish officials that the South Americans, disgusted and embittered, threw caution to the wind, drew the sword in turn, and met force by force, while the flare of battle burst out from the north to the south of the great continent. Chapter XVI The War of Independence I The analogy between the first invasions of South America by the conquistadors and the campaign of liberation undertaken by the South Americans of a later age is curious to remark. The conquistadors undertook three separate invasions, the first in the north, the second in Peru, and subsequently Chile, the third in the provinces of the River Plate. In the struggle of the South Americans against the Spanish forces, the field of war was divided into precisely the same categories. Bolivar, Sucre, Miranda, and their colleagues blew up the flames of strife and kept them alive in the north, Belgrano, San Martin, Guimes, 
and their comrades maintained the fight in the River Plate provinces, while the Chilean O'Higgins and his companions accompanied the great San Martin in his march from Argentina westwards over the Andes to Chile. From there, having freed the province, the liberating army turned northwards into Peru, eventually to fuse with the stream of patriot forces which was flowing down from the north with the same purpose in view. Since both Miranda and Bolivar had played such important parts before the outbreak of the revolution, it will be well to deal first of all with the progress of the wars in the north. It was in Caracas that the plans and projects of independence were matured. When the outbreak in the south took place, Caracas girded up its loins for war, and Bolivar and Miranda took the field beneath the banner of independence. In no place were the fortunes of war more varied than in the north and the campaign was destined to last 14 years before the Spanish power in the old kingdom of New Granada was finally broken. It is impossible here to go into the full details of the campaigns. In the first place, the Patriots, although they fought desperately, ill-armed and indisciplined as they were, suffered numerous reverses from the Spanish veterans who garrisoned the northern districts. More than once the flames of revolution seemed to all practical purposes extinguished, and Bolivar and his lieutenants, fugitives from the field of strife, were obliged to continue their plans in other lands, among these places of refuge being some of the British West Indian Islands, even here the patriots were by no means safe from the vengeance of Spain, various attempts were made to assassinate Bolivar, on one occasion a dastardly endeavor of the kind was within an ace of being successful, Bolivar had sailed to Jamaica in order to obtain supplies for the patriot forces, his presence in the island was noted, and some Spaniards bribed a Negro to enter the house where he was staying and to slay him as he lay asleep at night. The murderous black succeeded in penetrating to the room where the general usually slept. A figure lay upon the bed, and this the assassin stabbed to the heart, but it was not that of the liberator. It was his secretary, who had died in his stead. Bolivar, however, was not a man to be deterred from his plans by attempts such as these. He was possessed of a high courage and was by no means averse to distinguish himself on the battlefield from the rest in the matter of costume. At Boyaca, for instance, he donned a jacket and pantaloons of the most brilliant scarlet and gold, thus attracting an amount of attention on the part of the enemy which was sufficiently perilous in itself. The British did not long delay in taking an active interest in the struggle for independence, and very soon volunteers came flocking to the assistance of these northern districts of South America. Two separate British legions fought for Bolivar, one had been raised in England, and was commanded by General English, the other, formed in Ireland, was led by General Devereux, some corps of native Indian troops, it may be remarked, were officered by the British, and there was, moreover, in the Patriot service a battalion of rifles composed entirely of British and German troops. At first it appears that a marked spirit of distrust manifested itself between the native Patriots and the British but very soon a mutual admiration cemented a friendship between the two races. The English volunteers found it difficult to display their true metal in the early days of the war. They suffered very severely on their first landing, since they were unaccustomed to the climate, and found themselves unable to accomplish the long marches made by the patriots. In a short while, however, they grew used to the country and its ways, and then their feats, instead of meeting with a certain amount of derision, provoked the enthusiastic admiration of the Colombians. It is certain that the campaign was no kid glove one. Some of the marshes were attended by almost incredible hardships and sufferings. It was, for instance, necessary in some districts to ford rivers in which the pride fish abounded. This fierce little creature, as is well known, 
is capable of tearing off a formidable mouthful of human flesh at a single bite, and this it never fails to do when the opportunity offers. Many severe wounds were caused among the British ranks by these ferocious fish, and it may be imagined that in the first instance experiences of the kind were as startling as they were disconcerting. General Pease was one of the chief heroes of the North. His career was to the full as adventurous as that of any other revolutionary leader. He enlisted in the first place as a common soldier in the militia of Barinos, and was soon after captured by the Spanish forces. His execution, together with that of all the other prisoners, was ordered, and would have taken place on the following day but for some circumstances which enabled him to give his captors the slip. The manner of his release was afterwards frequently recalled with no little awe by the superstitious. At eleven o'clock at night the alarm was given that the royalist forces were about to be attacked by the patriots, whose army had been seen advancing. The Spaniards retreated in a panic, and Pease and his fellow prisoners effected their escape. The following morning, when the royalists had recovered from their alarm, they could find no enemy within a radius of fifty miles. This incident was put down by the populace to the intervention in his favor on the part of the host of departed spirits known as the Enterchito de las Animas. Pease was extremely popular among his men, the hardy Lanaros of the northern plains, born horsemen and fighters, corresponding in many respects with the famous gauchos of the south. Pease himself was a magnificent horseman, and wielded the lance, the characteristic weapon of the Lanaros, to perfection. He was thus doubly beloved of his troops, since it was these qualities, of course, which appealed to them more than the military strategy of which he gave such marked evidence. On one occasion, when accompanied by very few of his own troops, Pease rode up to a powerful body of royalist cavalry. When quite close to the enemy his men turned their horses as though in sudden terror, and galloped away, hotly pursued by the royalist horsemen. When Pease considered that he had drawn these sufficiently far from their camp, he turned upon them and cut them up in detail. His most extraordinary feat, however, was the capture of some Spanish gunboats on the river Apore by means of his Lanaro cavalry. This is an account of the feat as given by an eyewitness who was attached to the British Legion. Bolivar stood on the shore gazing at these the gunboats in despair, and continued disconsolately parading in front of them. When Pease, who had been on the lookout, rode up and inquired the cause of his disquietude, His Excellency observed, I would give the world to have possession of the Spanish flotilla, for without it I can never cross the river, and the troops are unable to march, but it shall be years in an hour, replied Pease. It is impossible, said Bolivar, and the men must all perish. Leave that to me, rejoined Pease, and galloped off. In a few minutes he returned, bringing up his guard of honor, consisting of three hundred lancers selected from the main body of the Lanaros for their proved bravery and strength, and, leading them to the bank, thus addressed them, We must have these flesh ears or die. Let those follow Tile who please Tile, or Uncle, was the popular name by which Pease was known to his men and at the same time, spurring his horse, pushed into the river and swam towards the flotilla. The guard followed him with their lances in hand, now encouraging their horses to bear up against the current by swimming by their sides and patting their necks, and then shouting to scare away the alligators, of which there were hundreds in the river, until they reached the boats, when, mounting their horses, they sprang from their backs on board them, headed by their leader, and, to the astonishment of those who beheld them from the shore, captured every one of them. To English officers it may appear inconceivable that a body of cavalry, with no other arms than their lances, and no other mode of conveyance across a rapid river than their horses, 
should attack and take a fleet of gunboats amidst shoals of alligators, but, strange as it may seem, it was actually accomplished, and there are many officers now in England who can testify to the truth of it. It will be evident from exploits such as these that the Venezuelans were fortunate in their leaders. After a while Simon Bolivar, the liberator, began to see that the materialization of his lifelong ideal was now no longer a matter of the dim distant future. The struggle had been severe, and the fortunes of war had proved fickle at the beginning. At one period it had seemed that even nature had fought against the South American cause, that bark was in it an earthquake had shattered the barracks of the soldiers of the independence, and many hundreds of troops were crushed beneath the ruins. The moral as well as the material effect of this disaster was serious in the extreme. Miranda, moreover, although able, had proved himself an unfortunate general. In the end he was captured by the Spaniards, and died in captivity in Cadiz, even when the tide of battle had definitely turned against the Spaniards. Their desperate straits induced them to desperate measures, and the fortitude of the patriots continued to be put severely to the test. One of the most dreaded Spanish moves, for instance, was the freeing of the slaves and the arming of these against their late colonial masters. So embittered became the struggle that prisoners were put to death on both sides and many terrible massacres ensued in consequence. A number of other prominent patriot leaders now came forward to assist Bolivar and his comrades, among these being Marino, who proved himself victorious in many fights against the royalists. At length, in 1821, Bolivar and effected a junction of their forces, and marched to meet the Spanish army. On June 24th the Battle of Carabobo was fought, which are, 